I'm Megan. I'm Tyler. And this is The Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story. Hey, Tyler. Hey, Megan. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah. We are back for season two, episode six, The Fight. And I am ready to talk about love. Like, I feel like this episode is going to get us into like a deep conversation about the love plot, the Jim and Pam of it all. Hey, the Jim and Pam of it all. I am excited to hear this. And I got to tell you, I feel like I have not thought about the love in this episode at all. And I focus much more on the fighting. Yes. (laughs) I suppose there's a love story between Dwight and Michael as well. Yeah, I think that's maybe the love that I thought more about. Okay, but good. Because I feel like in the last, I'm trying to remember, what was the last episode called? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Insert, hold up. Halloween. Halloween, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I felt like it's been a little while since we recorded, but I remember thinking that there were elements, like little little pepperings of the love story between them. And I didn't really, like, we didn't really talk about them that much. And I was like, oh, we got to come back to it. And then this episode really picks up that thread. So yes. I was kind of excited about that. But did you have any uh, corrections, omissions, uh, issues you want to... Yes, from the previous. I did have one, my uh, revisions and regrets from- Oh, that's it, revisions and regrets. One of them, and that was about Chili's. I think you mentioned this at some point, the Chili's Uh, reference in the episode, but I felt like it deserved more time and I regretted not giving it more time. And that was when Michael has fired Devin and Devin is leaving and he's on his way out and he is mad. And Michael says, look, look, in addition to severance and everything, I want to give you this gift certificate to Chili's from me, okay? No hard feelings. And then Devin tears it up and throws it on the floor. And I just really appreciated that they picked up Michael's love of Chili's again, that they're creating kind of a through line with that. And then after everybody has left the office and Devin has smashed a pumpkin on Michael's Sebring, it cuts to Michael alone in the office and he's on his hands and knees, I think, and he's picking up the shreds of the Chili's gift certificate. So I just wanted to get that on the record. I don't remember. Does it say how much the gift certificate is for? I don't believe it does. Who would have given him this gift certificate? His mom? Have we met? I we never met his family, as far as I can recall, right? Like we have not. And I mean, I guess that's what it's like. You don't usually meet your coworkers' family members usually. Yeah. Although we've yeah. met Pam's mom. That's true. We have met Pam's mom. But other than that, uh, oh, and Stanley's wife. Oh yeah, she was at the. Thing. Was she the only family member who ended up attending? Oh, I think Kevin's girlfriend was there, maybe Stacy. Uh, but yeah, I yeah. I really believe that your hatred for um what's that guy's name? Duncan, what was his name? <laughs> Devin. Devin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not off to a good start with my memory, but uh was because he rejected the um the gift of chilies. I felt like you were biased against him. Oh my gosh, you know what? I think that that is definitely a factor. (laughs) Consider next time I advocate for Devin's firing. 
all over again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, but on the other hand, I mean, I do think Devin was crazy. It's like, take it, man. Take everything you can. Take it. Exactly. Steal the Seabree. point by yeah. <laughs> tearing up perfectly good Chili's money. Trying to remember. I don't think I have any revisions and regrets. I just regret that I forgot that we called it revisions <laughs> and regrets. And I love <laughs> so much. We need to put that in our like, you know, show notes so that I, so that we remember, uh, cause it's, it's so good. Well, if that's it, should we be getting into the episode? Yeah, let's do it. Um, okay. So the summary for this episode is Dwight tries to prove his purple, purple belt merit by gut punching Michael. Jim organizes a lunchtime rematch at Dwight's dojo. So yeah, what were your initial impressions of this one? Did you have strong memories of it? I actually had forgotten how many things in this episode I really love. I guess that are just office things that I love that happen in this episode. And I forgot that this is where they come and we'll probably talk about them. But when Michael starts calling Ryan and doing the, this is Michael Jackson thing on the phone. That's one of them. Michael's interview where he talks about being loved or feared. So we can come to these things as they arise, but I'll just say that this had a couple of those little things, those kinds of lines that I repeat very frequently in my own life and just Mm -hmm. can't place exactly where in the timeline of the office they came from. And this is where it was. I definitely didn't remember any of it. I except when when it gets to the actual like fight scene in the dojo, um, it goes on a bit, and you get I, or you just I just got the impression that that there was a lot of improv in that scene. You know, like it felt really loose, and it felt like they were just kind of cutting into things that were funny in the moment. And I kept looking at the uh, the what. Um, the sensei's face, you know, where it looks like he's about to laugh or break. And I had kind of vaguely remembered the show having like being feeling more improv to me. And on the whole, like, I don't think it is like it does. It seems like highly scripted, but that scene feels felt like really improv to me. And I wondered if it was fun to film. So I kind of vaguely remembered that. And then the opening of this feels like the real I, I guess it's not the beginning because don't we have in the first season the stapler in the jello or something like that? But yeah, White's desk being in the bathroom feels like a huge escalation of the pranking and yeah. kind of the cementing of this whole uh ritual or whatever at the beginning yeah. of the show. Um so yeah, I had not remembered it, but when it happened, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. This I remember this kind of vaguely. Let's start with that. So let's, yeah, let's get into that prank because you're right. I feel like this really solidifies this kind of dynamic between Dwight and Jim. And we see the extensiveness and the creativity and effort that Jim will go to for these pranks. So he has moved Dwight's desk into the bathroom including all of the stuff on his desk, the computer, the phone, he's run the lines for the phone and the internet and the electricity and whatever, all the way into the bathroom. And I love it that when Dwight, so when Dwight comes in, Jim starts playing that hot and cold game, you know, like getting hotter and colder until eventually he finds it in the bathroom. 
And then I just love it that Jim calls him to ask him something, some question about prices where Dwight has to go look in his binder. And he says, Jim, I've given you this information like 20 times. Uh, So I just found it really kind of endearing, I think, how Dwight is at first, he's annoyed about the prank, but then he doesn't connect. Yeah. That's a part of it. And the Jim is fucking with him there. And he just, you know, opens his binder and gives him the information he needs. That made me wonder how stupid we are to think Dwight is because he comes off as incredibly stupid here in that he's like, or, or, or ignorant or whatever, like, but it's so obvious that Jim is the one who did it, but he says, who moved my desk? And it's like, <laughs> what? And, you know, and he's sort of threatening the whole office, but it's like, Jim is clearly the one who's like, oh, where could it have gone? And then starts yeah. playing with him. So, and then, yeah, that amps up too when he's like, uh, calls him and he's like, I've given you this information so many times as if he doesn't realize that like, yeah, uh, that's because Jim is messing with you. So I don't know. I was, hmm. I was like, maybe Dwight is dumber than I thought uh, that he was or is. Um, but I also enjoyed Kevin's role in that scene where he comes out of the stall, <laughs> blows out the candle and then puts it on the desk, which made me wonder whether that candle was always in the bathroom and Jim placed it on Dwight's desk or whether Dwight had a candle and then Kevin took the initiative to be like, well, now it's a, you know, stink out the bathroom bathroom candle. candle. Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Here's another question though. I think that we should get into the logistics of this prank. Oh, good question. I was telling it as if Jim did this. Jim could not do this on his own. Right. How much time and how much effort do you think it took like that is a big desk that is definitely not a one-person job and you have to maneuver it around the other desks through that door into the little whatever that area is called with the bathrooms into the bathroom then get all the stuff how early do you think he came to work to do this and whose help do you think he recruited that's a great point because Dwight you would think Dwight is never late to work right that's just seems to be his personality so I don't understand how everybody else is there and like settled in. So maybe was he coming back from like a sales run or coming back yeah. from lunch? Yeah, maybe at a client meeting. So, you know, I don't, that seems to me a factor here, but regardless, like, yeah, it would take so much time. I thought Oscar looked um, guilty. Yes. In guilty to me. Uh, it did look guilty. I wondered if there was a collaboration, you know, between him and Jim. I mean, the whole office seemed to be like in on it, right? Yeah, you're right. I was really struck by Dwight's military winter jacket or coat. Did you notice that? Yes. Long kind of army green brass buttons. Yeah, I wondered if it was supposed to be a particular like war reference or something. Because in this episode, he makes the joke about his like grandfather basically being a Nazi. And (laughs) I was like, is this his grandfather's coat? He comes, yeah, does he say something like he comes from a long tradition of fighters (laughs) and it's this grandfather who ended up in an allied prison camp. (laughs) So the way, and he doesn't even say, yeah, my grandfather fought for the Nazis. It's kind of awkward. He doesn't say that. He just, yeah, describes him as a fighter who ended up in an allied prison camp. It definitely goes to my like Dwight would be like a a, a QAnon or a, like a rabid 
white supremacist or something like i don't know you know like he's he's exhibiting you know distressing signs uh of of you know being radicalized uh to be a fascist um, and, the, the potential the potential for radicalization yeah so when it was like oh yeah like he's he's got a, a nazi uncle that he's like you know proud of i was like well that tracks like there we go <laughs> Um, but it's, there, there's also a great joke in there too, where his father fought obesity and blood pressure. I think high blood pressure all his life, and he's like, it's a different kind of fight, you know. But <laughs> that was yeah, like, it's amazing. Wife just respects a fight. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. I'm trying to remember. Okay, cold, cold and hot game. I would love to know where that comes from. Do you have any idea, like the cultural practice of hot and cold, where that? <laughs> Where that comes question. from? I have no idea. Okay, yeah, me neither. I should have looked that up. Make a note for yourself for future research. Look up hot and cold. Yeah, hot and cold games. <laughs> um, yeah. Is it American? Is it specifically an American game? Is it a global phenomenon? Yeah, I'd like to know. <laughs> and it it must be like an inheritance of like once you get a certain capacity to control heating, right? perhaps oh yes like temperature i don't know yeah we are way out on a that limb. seems that seems right because if it's just well i don't know is fire enough maybe is it controlling heat could it go back that far all right so it could just be post <laughs> post, post fire. fire post prometheus or whatever uh Okay, so we get two plots in this episode. I was kind of really intrigued by how the the structure, the narrative structure work. Like, like I actually thought it was kind of interesting on its own terms. But plot A is, or I guess, you know, is Michael basically procrastinating, signing off on, you know, expense reports and things like that, right? Like he yes. doesn't want to work and he's, you know, and everybody wants him to sign these things so that he, they can all go home on time. Uh-huh. Um, and so that is basically like the, 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 the core problem. Right. And then yeah. meanwhile, Dwight is, is he now a purple belt or something like that? But he, and he's been promoted to senpai and he, you know, and so Jim instigates him into, uh, you know, fighting with, with Michael, which only exacerbates Michael's procrastination tendencies um i guess that's the plot here right um and i was just kind of interested in how it tagged back and forth between them a little bit i don't know if you had any thoughts on on the plots i think you're right that yeah the uh the sensei and the fight at the dojo like that line of it just kind of taps into michael's desire not to sign all of those papers. And so it becomes like the perfect out for him. We get the little alignment of those moments. You mentioned Dwight being senpai. And the thing too, that kind of kicks this all off is, well, so first of all, I noticed he's got his gym bag when he is walking in and he goes and discovers his desk. So he's got his bag with his stuff, which must be where the purple belts comes from Mm. but when jim they're sitting at their desks and jim hears dwight talking to sensei and he says hello it's senpai dwight 
Um, and then he and he tells Jim, I am now senpai, which is assistant sensei. And then Jim corrects him, assistant to the sensei. But I feel like this also ties back to in the Halloween episode when Dwight is on the phone for his kind of job interview or, you know, he's gotten a response, interest in his resume. And he asks something like, um, what does it say under martial arts training? And he's like, oh, oh apparently yes. it's nothing. And he's like, oh, I'm going to have to supplement that. Yes. So here we get the, the realization of his martial arts training. Yes. Yes. We finally get to see it. And my favorite image is him fighting alongside the children. Yes. <laughs> you know, in a, kicking or whatever in line with them. And I just thought that was amazing. But also that he is replicating the relationship with Michael with his sensei. And I, yeah. And, you know, obviously there's the joker. He's like basically just cleaning the floors and, you know, doing (laughs) ground work, whatever. Um, But I kind of wanted to ask you, what what do you make of the recurring bit about being an assistant versus an assistant to? Like, what do you (laughs) think the difference is and why does it, why, yeah, why does it bother, what's his face, uh, Dwight, so <laughs> Because the assistant regional manager is also a regional manager, and right? And the assistant mm-hmm. sensei is also a sensei. And the two the, and we get in this one too, at the end, Dwight is whiting out once Michael gives him this promotion. Yeah, it's in this episode that Michael promotes him from assistant to the regional manager to assistant regional manager. And Dwight whites out those two key words on his card. But I think it's like the emphasis goes from with assistant to the regional manager or assistant to the sensei. It really is like the emphasis is really on the assistant. Mm -hmm. You really are an assistant. But if you are an assistant sensei, then you also have more of that prestige and authority of the sensei even though you're still not the top one. Yeah, yeah. It's like being versus doing, right? Like, you know, you aren't, you don't have an identity. You're, you're adjunct to somebody else's identity. Yes. You're assisting them do their work. So you're just yes. like supplemental or uh-huh. adjunct or whatever. Um, yeah. yeah. But I love that point that, yeah, like you still technically are a sensei or a manager or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. if, if you white out the to the, um, yeah. <laughs> it is a really funny joke uh, that I really like that they keep playing on. And uh, man, Jim is really um, manipulative, isn't he? Like I, I rewatching it, I was like, man, he is pulling the strings yeah. on this one. Yeah, he does a lot of coordinating. And partly when he gets Pam you know when he makes yes. the deal with the chips and he's like, I'll buy you chips if you do this. And that's when she goes and knocks on Michael's door and she asks him, um, something like, can I, I just want to ask you since I'm probably going to stay late, can Dwight stay late too so that he can walk me to my car because he's really tough or something. So knowing that this is going to provoke Michael and open up into a much bigger conflict. It's so amusing to me uh how that like cuts right to michael's ego um yes i mean i did wonder why pam like plays a lot well no i don't wonder why because they're flirting this whole episode is them flirting and i want to talk a ton about it but Mm -hmm. um 
but uh but i was gonna say you know it is it is strange like you would think jim wants to get out of there as quick as possible but maybe michael signing things doesn't actually do anything for the sales team it maybe it only impacts pam and then the um, accountants or something like that i don't know i mean to toby seems to be sticking around but we taught you had made this point long ago that like jim's antics like in the olympics episode don't have any consequences for him because he can still make money in like 20 minutes whereas like it has all these negative consequences for pam and i felt like this episode reproduced that whole idea um yeah. but to the core issue at hand how do you feel about um french onion sun chips and do you think they are a, a worthy chip in the economy of of possible chips Tyler, thanks for cutting right to the real yeah. issue here. These are tough questions. These are the kinds of questions though that I do have really strong feelings about. I know you do. Love, <laughs> <laughs> Love French onion chips. And actually I've forgotten about them. I feel like they have sort of fallen by the wayside as a chip category. Mm. That and sour cream and cheddar. I feel like those are kind of a pair. I don't know. Have they fallen out of favor? Has their profile somehow declined? Or am I just missing them because I'm buying enormous bags of chips at Costco where there just aren't as many options? I don't know. But one thing I really wish that they were potato chips and not sun chips. I like sun chips too, but I don't know. I just like a nice pure potato chip. I would say, okay, first, I, I like a sun chip. I do. I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm not going to hide that, you know? Thanks for, being, thanks for being so straightforward and vulnerable about this, Tyler. It's hard, you know, but I've worked I've worked uh, a lot in therapy to come to a place where I can talk about these things. And uh, yeah, like, I like sun chips. Um, I do think they are strange in that it seems that they have been, like, crushed and then formed into a chip. <laughs> Like, I think they are made of crumbs, maybe. I'm not sure. It just seems that way. Or maybe that's... Right. Um, it's just like chicken nuggets or something like that. Yeah, that's the vibe I get. But I like them. I would probably lean towards a cheddar or whatever sun chip for sure. Um, okay. Yeah, and I would like to know the history of how sun chips, like, got a stranglehold on the sandwich market. Because it's like, feels like wherever you buy a sandwich, it's like, and here are sun chips for you. Um, I don't yeah. have any particular thoughts on French onion as a flavor. I would like to try it again. Yeah. But I will say first, I thought it was interesting that it's sun chips. I was like, is it supposed to be a healthy chip? Like how does this signify? But also they're in Pennsylvania. It should be hers potato chips. Like I was like, this is bullshit. Like this is some product placement or whatever. It should be a Pennsylvania brand of chip, specifically a her chip, I think. Tyler, that's a really strong read on Thanks. this. Yeah, I have a lot to offer. I think that they are going to realize that and introduce oh. her, introduce hers chips somewhere later down the road. I really? Right, though, that Sun Chips has this sort of aura of being a healthy chip. But you're right; they really have the market on that chip category because you, if you think, yeah, you're right. If you go to a, a sandwich place, they've got the potato chips and they've got the Sun Chips. But the potato chips, there are all of these competing brands. But with Sun Chips, it's just Sun Chips. Yeah, right? Yeah. I don't have a, a broader analysis of it other than uh, now I want chips. I wish we had chips. Um, 
What do you think, what makes for good flirting in your eyes? What do you think is good flirting? Because I was, uh, to me, this episode, specifically the Jim and Pam plot was about like, what is flirting and how do they flirt? And like, I don't mean to generalize it because this is definitely like flirting in an office space all, and or a dojo. This is definitely like, they are white middle-class white collar workers. And so their mode of flirtation, you know, is not necessarily going to look like other modes of flirtation, perhaps even in the warehouse, there might be different ways of doing flirting. But I did think that this was like an interesting representation of what flirting is or is supposed to be. And so I'll just lay out some things that I noticed. And then I kind of want to get your opinion. Like, is this good flirting? Is it creepy? Like what, 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 you know, what is it? Um, but okay. it on me, Tyler. right. So number one, he knows her favorite kind of chips. Mm-hmm. Number two, like they both read each other's like love lines or whatever. So there's hand touching. So there's yeah. like touching that is not explicitly sexual, but is intimate by mm-hmm. virtue of it being, you know, kind of close contact. Um, she says that he has nice teeth, I think, at some yeah. point. Um, I can't remember the context for that. He calls her Beasley. So having like a nickname or some sort of pet name seems crucial here. Um, mm-hmm. There is the, she kind of taps his face at a certain point. Then he like grabs her. So there's this like, playful wrestling and laughing <laughs> um, wrestling. you know and uh i feel as if i'm like a alien. i'm a- an alien describing human <laughs> mating rituals but still um uh there's this embrace and she's laughing and saying put me down and she does but she doesn't mean it until she's gazed yes. upon by somebody else and then she's like no actually put me down Um, and yeah, I don't know. I think those, I think that's it. Oh, well, I guess you could include the plot stuff where it's like, he's like, oh, I've got this idea to mess with them. Will you do this? And she says, yes. But to me, like those things seem to be the most flirtatious we've ever seen them be. Mm -hmm. And something about these things felt like iconic flirting to me, the kind of teasing, the sarcasm, the, touching that isn't exactly sexual, but isn't like not, I don't know. I was just curious what you, what you made of all of it. Well, the one I had the strongest reaction to was that he knows her favorite chips Mm. because as soon as you said that, I was like, yep, that's hot. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the knowing her favorite chips is a really, really attractive move. What makes that hot? What, what's hot about that? Uh, it's just sweet. It's like he paid attention to something that she said and remembered it mm. and did something about it. Mm. So I think that that's, I think that that's real nice. Um, the reading the love lines that, I mean, that feels like such a, such a kind of move is creating opportunities for touching, <laughs> creating opportunities for unnecessary touching and right. reading the love lines being one of those. The playful I like how you described it as playful wrestling (laughs) because the so crucial moment and this goes from like what's 
what's also socially acceptable flirting and then when do you cross a line yes and it is when it is seen you're so right when i think it's meredith kind of turns around so this is jim yeah they're doing sort of playful wrestling jim picks grabs pam and picks her up by the waist and her shirt starts to come up so yes. you can see her stomach and you're right that at first when she's saying put me down it's that like playful you know she's still along with it and then the tone really changes once yeah. she's seeing herself be seen and yeah then it becomes it becomes i don't know embarrassing or something what do you think was happening in that moment for her with meredith looking at her was it about roy like oh i'm with somebody else and this so clearly reads as flirtatious or was it more like I'm being, you know, this is immature and I'm being seen as, um, you know, as uh, childish or playful or something, or it, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. Is it about, I don't know. I mean, I guess I initially read it as about the, I, I have a boyfriend and this is so clearly flirting, but on the other hand, like, is it? It is. <laughs> you think Meredith, Meredith saw it and was like, okay. No, it's, no well, I feel like that's just, I feel like that's definitely a part of it. The thing, it is so clearly beyond office friendship. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like it has gotten in that so physical that it's just too much. This part makes me feel so awkward, actually. Really? Um, what? Yes. <laughs> I know. It's very hard to make me feel awkward, but this, this, this is one... fascinating because I'm the one who doesn't like the cringe. Uh-huh. <laughs> So let's really zero in on what's awkward about it for you. <laughs> okay. Gosh, what is it? Mm. I mean, he has her up off the ground. Yeah. And this also earlier <laughs> when Dwight was in the kitchen teaching um, Kelly a couple of moves. And then he says something like, okay, now I'll take you from behind. Yes. <laughs> and she's like, what? <laughs> and that really changes but Jim is basically taking her from behind and doing that thing that Dwight was threatening to do yep. um, you're right yeah this has got to be behind closed doors well okay so first like is this a particularly heteronormative way of flirting like because it felt to me like like it was but I couldn't I don't know if I could like clarify why other than it seems like heteronormativity often has to like pretend that it is not interested in sex. So it has to invent ways <laughs> of like creating closeness with under the idea that it's like, oh yeah, no, I'm not interested in sex at all. Cause like sexual shame is so strong. And also you're not, you're not allowed to be sexually desirous. Right. So it's like, um, so there's something kind of like infantile to me, like not only in what they're doing, but like in heteronormativity itself, where mm -hmm. you have to like make things that aren't sexual become sexual without admitting that you're making them sexual. On the other hand, maybe that's not unique to heteronormativity. Maybe that's also like, you know, what is exciting about desire, right? Like you don't know... Yeah that the other person is interested in what you're interested in. And so you have to find ways of like orchestrating some kind of alignment around that. But in yeah. this case though, she is partner. Like there is this part of me, it's like, how does she not know that he's into her and that she's into him? Like, does she not realize that? Does he not realize this? Like, 
or do they realize it? And it's just so they're so repressed. They can't, she can't admit this. I think she knows. I think she feels it and it's unspeakable, but I think it becomes (laughs) harder to deny it outwardly and to yourself. Once you get caught, like once you get seen by somebody else. And I feel like she feels seen by Meredith in that moment. And that makes it what do you lose with such a like plausible deniability? Right. <laughs> Which you need to be, hey, but your point before about having to hide or not address the kind of sexual dimensions of it and the desire dimensions of it, maybe that is what flirting, back to your initial question of what flirting is, maybe that's what flirting is, is like inserting desire into places where it isn't necessarily there. Mm. Or wouldn't it's not like by default there because right. with the playful wrestling thing we also have michael and dwight fighting so it's like there's parallel fights also yes in this the it makes me think there's something almost sibling like yes too you know where like you physically fight your siblings yes and then you end up physically fighting against a flirtation well there's definitely i feel like that kind of um cliche trope where it's like oh the little boy pulling the hair of the girl and it's like oh actually he likes you right and this is like problematic for all kinds of reasons <laughs> not least of all because it sort of codifies male violence as like actually as actually the sign of care and intimacy yeah. and desire right so like you know uh, you know i'm not invoking that cliche as like a good one but but it did come to mind here where it was like, this feels very kind of elementary school, mm-hmm. but also, um, yeah, like kind of sibling-esque, mm-hmm. uh, like you say. And certainly there's that, like, that's what's so fun, actually, I think about this episode, because initially I was like, eh, this isn't my favorite, but it really is interesting given your queer reading of Michael and his <laughs> relationship with the temp, because essentially what we have, I'm going to like push my queer reading real far, but like, Michael wants the temp's phone number. The temp gives it to him. He then, you know, calls him and inhabits like, not for nothing, a number of queer characters. And I think he even calls, doesn't he call, um, uh, he calls somebody queer in this episode. And then he, and then he mentions queer eye for the straight guy and says like, oh no, that's a good show, you know, whatever. Yeah. Then, um, so then like there's already this charged thing um between him and ryan and then that he's frustrated and 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 denied and it transitions towards aggression towards dwight yes but meanwhile jim is the one orchestrating their fight so that he can extend his playfulness flirtation with pam so it's like heterosexuality needs this like queer flirtation over here so that it can flourish or something i don't know i I don't know it just felt really that the episode was smart enough to layer like you said two fights that are actually not about fights they're about trying to be close to one another in some way yes you're right flight fighting and flirtation are actually so entangled here and you know like desire and aggression um that kind of seem to bleed into each other in in some ways when everybody gets out of that elevator they are also filled with silence and shame and i was like what happened 
Like, and Michael is like threatening to spit in Dwight's mouth, which is like a sibling thing. It is also like a highly eroticized thing in a way, right? Like swapping spit is a is a kissing thing. Obviously, this is not a reciprocal swap, but but you know, they cut away. And so in my notes, I was like, did he spit in his mouth? Like what happened here? It just, and then the fact that everybody's quiet about that. And then Jim and Pam are talking to each other. They structurally align all silence here. So that <laughs> essentially the same silence. I, I don't know. I, I was like, this oh. is weird. And I love it. Yes. You are so right. And Michael, the way that he wins. So Ira the Sensei also in trying to follow the actual rules, those get totally lost. And Michael yeah. wins, quote unquote, but this is when he's, he, he's got Dwight on the ground and he's straddling him and sitting on top of him. Yeah, and like coughing up phlegm to get ready, not only to spit on him, but to spit on him in like the most disgusting way. Oh. And I think the last thing he says that we hear is, open your mouth. <laughs> But there's yeah. a lot going on here. Um, I just had a note around there too that uh, Michael's like, you know, when uh, when I was young, there were only two rules, no kicks to the groin and home for dinner or something like that. <laughs> yes. Um, Which I felt, home yeah. for dinner made me think that his idea, and I, I want to get into this, but it made me think that his idea of toughness is from being a little kid who's out playing in the afternoon and whose mom says you have to be home at a certain time yeah i yeah um just one more thing about flirting and fighting something i've always thought about flirting is that like it can't it how to put it you can flirt and be obvious but like there has to be this kind of ironic I feel that there's like an inherent irony to flirtation where you're the playfulness of it is like, we both know what's going on, but we're going to pretend like we don't know what's going on. Yeah. And maintaining that line is the, is the fun part or it's the, it's what generates sexiness is like this kind mm -hmm. of how well can you kind of delicately not be too obvious, but not be too coy and, and toe the line. And um, so maybe that is also like that, that requires like you said, plausible deniability, which once Meredith looks, then somebody, you're seeing yourself through someone else's eyes and like, yeah. you can't, you can't maintain that tension anymore or something. Yes. Um, but I thought it was interesting that it's Meredith and not anybody, it's not like Angela, which would be a much clearer, um, like gaze of judgment. And it wasn't even clear to me that Meredith was judging them. Yeah, you're right. So Nobody maybe else turns around. Yeah. And so maybe it's just that gaze itself, that it doesn't have to be judging, but that it has the potential to be, or that it's just in being seen that you then make the judgment of yourself. Yeah, right. You know, or like that Pam, it it's like that outside view makes her see herself and what's happening in a way that then regardless of what Meredith feels about it, Pam knows she doesn't necessarily feel great about it this feels like very uh psychoanalytic in some way or whatever this idea that like yourself comes into being through yeah. the gaze of others that you you know it's like you don't uh -huh. yeah you're not like aware of yourself intrinsically it's only like mediated by somebody else's gaze yeah um, 
maybe we can come back to that with uh with um the fight but i was wondering you said there was something you really wanted to get into i wanted to hear more about that so that thing that i wanted to talk about more is how michael perceives himself as a fighter yes and he let's go back i want to begin when michael so <laughs> this this starts when dwight or i'm sorry when when uh jim is kind of trying to provoke them and he is talking to dwight and asking basically who Dwight thinks he could beat. And so Dwight says, no, no women or children unless provoked. Yeah. And says, okay, Roy, Dwight, warehouse guy doesn't count. So one thing I want to think about is what is this deal with having a kind of roster in your head of who the people are who you could beat mm. and who you could physically dominate? Fascinating. I want to talk about that. And so then Jim asks, okay, Michael, could you beat up Michael? And Michael's just kind of walking by and he says, yeah, yeah, I don't think that would happen. Dwight says, because we're friends. Michael says, because I would kick his ass. Um, and then Jim tells him, well, Dwight's a purple belt. So Michael, so I've beaten up black belts. Jim, uh, how did you know they were black belts? Michael, they told me after. You see, I used to run with a very tough crowd. Street fighter types, real, real bad people. I'm just lucky I got out. <laughs> <laughs> and so a couple of related things with that. It then kind of cuts to Michael sitting on Jim's desk and it's like he's wrapping up a story and yeah. we haven't heard the story, but he's ending it and he says, and after that, nobody messed with the damn rascals ever again. <laughs> so his crew of street fighters is called the damn, rascals. the damn rascals. And then Jim responds, when you're a jet, you're a jet all the way, which I did not know, but is a reference to West Side Story. Right. And to one of the little gangs and little, I don't know if I should call them little, but one of the gangs in West Side Story. So Tyler, what are your thoughts about Michael's fighting persona and his background, his very tough background growing up with some real, real bad people, street fighter types? I assumed that, well, okay, so I, I wasn't sure. I didn't know whether, A, is he just making all of this up mm -hmm. uh, out of thin air? B, like, was he actually in, in a group <laughs> um that was like uh you know kind of ridiculous um or c was he the victim of a group <laughs> that was oh, called the damn that's... rascals and he's like representing it in his memory as uh <laughs> he was a part of this gang because it's like that feels like a michael thing to do is to sort of include <laughs> himself into something that was real but that he wasn't a part of but i definitely was like okay so he's just like he keeps BSing and BSing and and getting himself further and further into a hole. Um, and it just really made me laugh that his vision of childhood and fighting all seems to be ripped from like the outsiders or like some like 1950s like greaser, you know, uh, like, you know, pulp thing, you know? Yeah, like exactly West Side Story or whatever. And I just found that 
hilarious because I don't even know where Michael grew up, but if so, and it was Scranton, you know, I don't know. It's hard to imagine like street toughs, you know, roaming the streets of Scranton, PA. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they are, but. Um, street toughs is totally the word for them. Thinking, <laughs> yeah, what does it mean though, when your image of toughness comes from musical theater? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You got a switchblade and you dance and uh, I'm here for that. But I am loving this point that you're, I've never thought about this before, but this is a hundred percent a thing, at least as far as I know that men do, you know, cause I feel like I've been around or if, if I, if I have or have not been around men who've done this, I've definitely seen it in other like movies and stuff, but this kind of like, okay, who could beat who up? Could you be like, who, who could you, who's like weaker and stronger of this pair of yeah. people, you know, and sometimes it can get fantastical. It's like, okay, Batman fought Superman, who would win? Mm -hmm. But more mundanely, it's like, oh, would you win if Joe and and Bob fought or whatever? You know, so yeah. I I never thought about that as like a kind of constant ranking or hierarchy of like speculative toughness. Uh, oh, but you're totally right. Speculative toughness. <laughs> I just, does, is there like an equivalent that you would say that uh, women do or do women do that? Like I, that doesn't, it seems very mas masculine coded or whatever. Hmm. I don't know. I feel like, I feel like I sometimes have that in my mind. I'm like, yeah, yeah you know, <laughs> did I beat this person up? Or like, do I feel like I could run faster than this person? Yeah. I don't know. It's sometimes there. I feel like I, now this is inspiring me to try to develop a fuller system. <laughs> For example, when Roy comes up, he's like warehouse guy doesn't count. So like there are certain sets of people, you know, who you're not even up against. Yeah. And there are others who are basically in your league who you do rank. And so I want to get more systematic about this, honestly. Uh, yeah, I like this idea. Yeah. So would students be in the league or not? Like, like <laughs> I think you'd have to say students don't count. Don't count. Yeah. Uh, unless it's like yeah, I think you're you're getting into bad territory there. <laughs> I think also if you're not on if you're even if you're not on school grounds, you know, I think as yeah. an employee of the university, you're you know, you're <laughs> bound by the, I haven't looked at the student or the faculty handbook, but I'm sure it says I mean, I haven't looked at this. I haven't looked for, am I allowed to fight students? But I'm pretty sure not. <laughs> they probably didn't even think, oh, that, that's something to put in the handbook. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I kind but of was curious about is. that in the context of the office. I was like, is he like legally allowed to fight Dwight? Like what, what are the legal <laughs> ramifications of this? This is a very good question. Why didn't Toby weigh in more on this? Yeah, Toby, come on. Did he, he go? Know. Was he there? I can't remember. Good question. Oh, He's definitely around in this episode. I can't remember seeing him there or not. I remember and Michael telling him to walk away at one point. Um, but maybe that's unrelated. I can't remember. Um yeah. yeah, poor Toby in this. His emergency contact is his ex-wife. <laughs> yeah. Then he tells Ryan, you don't need to put down X. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, he's so <laughs> pathetic. Uh, oh, I love 
that actor's performance it's so hard for me to imagine him as anything other than that guy like it just seems so like like he is that guy I'm sure that he's not but it feels real yeah he's very good so do you think that Dwight and or Michael could beat up Toby where does Toby fall in this hierarchy of toughness don't you think that well I want to say I want I want to root for Toby I want to think he would be scrappy but I really think he would just wilt you know real quick uh so yeah, I think they could, yeah. I think probably everybody in the office could beat up Toby. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Wilting. I feel like that's a good description. Maybe that's why I like him. You know, he's a peaceful man at heart. You know, he didn't even want to get divorced. <laughs> that's right. He's a man of peace. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, wait. Uh, one of my favorite moments comes around the, the place where you're bringing us to, uh, which is when... Um, Let's see. I'm trying to find the dialogue. Okay. Uh, uh, da, 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 da. Basically, like when uh, we find out that um, Michael and Dwight spent New Year's Eve together. Yes. Watching Armageddon. Yes. And Dwight cried. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, he says... Um, I told you it was because it was New Year's Eve and it began to snow exactly at midnight. <laughs> and he says, oh, Bruce Willis, are they going to leave him on the asteroid? Okay, I'll punch you. <laughs> okay, here we go. Um, so part of the reason Dwight finally breaks his honor not to punch his friend is because his friend has revealed his emotional vulnerability either at Bruce Willis dying at the end, oh, spoiler alert, dying at the end of Armageddon or... <laughs> Or, which is just as sweet, the idea that it like, it snows exactly at midnight on New Year's Eve and that makes him cry. Yeah. Um, I don't know, I found that, but I also was like, oh my gosh, like Michael, you you hang out with him on New Year's Eve. He's your best friend. What are you <laughs> doing? Yes, there is something very tender about that moment. And we've had a little bit of reference to this before. I'm thinking about in the, Um, basketball episode when Dwight wants to be on the team and Michael says something like you embarrassed me on the court you embarrassed me in front of Todd Packer in his pickup basketball games on the weekend and Dwight goes as his associate when he closes on his condo and yeah they spend New Year's Eve together just with the two of them watching a movie and it is so sweet and you're right it really is a best friend kind of thing so what do you think about their relationship in this episode I don't know I mean I think that uh I'm trying to remember Michael says at one point basically like he's not talking specifically about Dwight but he is at the same time um where he's basically saying you know uh all the workers are my best friends but then they start coming in late and they have dentist appointments that are dentist appointments, something like that, you know? Um, And so you need to like put them in their place or or whatever. I think that's in this. Um, And yeah, he says, and that's when it's nice to let them know that you can beat them up. (laughs) (laughs) Like implicitly, I I mean, it's not even subtext, but I mean, he's talking about Dwight because that's the only person that he is threatened by and that he's threatening to beat up. But uh-huh. implicitly, he is acknowledging that he's his best friend there, right? Like he's saying, like, you you know, these people are your best friends. So I don't know. I mean, Dwight or Michael wants so badly to be cool. And yeah. 
I think that that is like actually like kind of heartbreaking to me that he would sell out the person that is by all accounts like his best friend so that he can be perceived as cool to people that are not his friend have no interest in him whatsoever Mm -hmm. I don't know that feels very understandable (laughs) to me or human like not saying I would sell you out Megan you know in a heartbeat (laughs) uh if Sun Chips came along and offered me a, you know, an exclusive contract, I'm not saying I would take that. But uh, a deal with you, do a deal with you guys, but we only want Tyler. <laughs> yeah, they offer me, you know, this. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think like what the scenario. Anyway, um, uh, anyway, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, what do you make of it all? To go well back to the appointment earlier about. Ryan and his, you know, he's trying to build up this connection with Ryan. Oh, and like you said, he gets Ryan's phone number and starts calling him. And at the, one of those kind of sad moments too is closer to the end when Ryan is, actually, I can't remember exactly when this happens. Yeah, it is toward the end. And Ryan is outside in the parking lot, leaning against his car. It looks like he's on his lunch break or something. And um, Michael says, Mr. Temp having lunch by his car, let us play with him. And um, he calls and Ryan pulls out his phone, looks at it and like rolls his eyes and kind of his whole head in his very understandable frustration with Michael's calls. But then Michael says, oh, we're playing phone tag. (laughs) Like the camera has seen all of this and knows you're not playing phone tag. So it's just so sad, but you're right. Dwight is the guy who is always there for him, but Mm -hmm. kind of back to the sibling thing. Mm -hmm. He also like Dwight's love is also sort of built in, in a way where he knows like you can get away with beating up Dwight and still be friends with him. Yeah. There's him. Being, yeah. being friends with Dwight, the guy who brings his purple belt to work, is not as cool as being friends with Ryan. Right, right. Yeah, there's something there about, like, uh, Michael's desire to, right? It's like, he doesn't want the thing he has. He wants the thing that he doesn't have or can't have, you know? Yes. And in that way, is just like Jim, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, I don't know, I don't have any point, but I just think it's, yeah, I, th- I think it's like, it feels very high school to me or something like that, you know, like something yeah. about that kind of like, as if friendship is more about social status than an end in itself or about the pleasure you have in the people that you are friends with, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. It's so heartbreaking to, you know, Mike, Michael's like, what are you going to do this weekend? Like, give me a shout if you're yes. doing anything crazy. Um, you know, he just can't accept this rejection from yeah. Ryan. Um, but I do think you're right, too. There's something about, like, authority. Like, the fact that he is Dwight's superior, but Dwight, like, wants that or, like, want you know, keeps giving yeah. him... You know, he, yeah. I don't know, this desire to win over the person that isn't interested in you is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very familiar to me. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like when teaching a class, like I'm going to zero in on the one student who's like, 
bored or not interested, you know, rather than take pleasure in the like students that are connecting and he present, I'm like, I'm just going to focus all my energies on the one. Yeah. Yeah. Like your hostility. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I was thinking about is the end of it too. Yeah. What happens to their relationship over the course of this plot? Um, <laughs> when, so we find out that Michael is Dwight's emergency contact. And after Michael defeats and humiliates him at the dojo, he comes and tells Ryan to change it to the hospital. And for phone number, just put down 911. Yeah. <laughs> but then Michael tells him, no, change it back. Cut out the middleman. Like, put me in. I'll call the hospital. So it felt like Michael does want to restore the relationship with him mm-hmm. in some way. And then at the end, he calls Dwight into the conference room and he says, I've been testing you and you passed. And that's when he promotes him to assistant regional manager. Yep. So thoughts? did you have any thoughts about this final interaction and where they kind of arrive after the fight? I think... Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, the one thing I'm thinking in the moment is, you know, uh, in the context of my my ridiculous analogy to teaching a minute ago, like, <laughs> it is funny in retrospect that Michael is basically like, uh, positions himself as Dwight's teacher. You know, it's like, yes, he, Dwight yeah. says, I have so much to learn from you. And he says, yes, yes, you do. Um, oh. Thank you, sensei. You know, so it is like, sensei in this episode is like not just a position of authority but also of like education of knowledge right and like michael wants to be a teacher like that was that's the problem with his relationship with ryan is that like he's not ryan is smarter than him in his eyes and so he doesn't have anything to like teach him as much as he's trying to so um i don't know so that that hit me you know that this kind of like but of course, too, the like saving face or whatever. he can't say like, hey, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. I, yes. I shouldn't have done that. And like, you're really good at fighting or whatever. And I like you. And hey, let's go watch Armageddon together. Or something. <laughs> um, I mean, back to the like flirting discourse, it's similar, right? Where it's like, I have to pretend yeah. that I'm not saying I'm sorry. Instead, I have to, I'm, you know, we both. But that's the thing. That's what makes this feel more manipulative to me. Is that like, I don't think Dwight seemed, I mean, maybe Dwight is saving face too, but like he definitely seems to want to accept the idea that Michael has been testing him rather than being like, yeah, we both know what we're saying here, you know, or mm-hmm. something. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Oh, that's tough. And maybe it's just that for Dwight being... Like Michael just selects exactly the perfect thing that Dwight can't turn down and that is so important to him. It's interesting because it feels like on the one hand, this is a move for Michael to try to kind of restore the relationship and preserve the friendship in some ways. But you're right, like it doesn't, it can't happen directly and it is in a way where it maintains, like it reestablishes their connection. It puts them back onto terms of being okay with each other, but within the clearly hierarchical relationship of 
sensei and assistant sensei. <laughs> yeah. Even though he gets rid of the two the, because then he, though he says like, it's just, um, Dwight asks, you know, if Pam can send out a memo and Michael tells yeah. him, no, there's no, there's no changes really to this. It's basically just the two of them know it and no one else is going to know it. It would be interesting, like what would be different in the episode if Michael had lost and Dwight had won. Yeah. Because it would be, I feel like it would be a more obvious restoration of like roles. It would be like, you know, Dwight goes back to his subordinate position and Michael goes back to his authority. But in this case, like Michael is the authority and he wins. And so like, it really is that he is mean. He was, he was humiliating him. Right. Um, He's not offering him any sense of respect or whatever. And so that's why I love what you said, like that he is trying to like repair the relationship, but it has, but, but it kind of has to do it within the terms, like you said, that they relate to one another in. Um, And that, I don't know, I'm trying to like make some allegory here for masculinity, but I, I don't know if I've got one on hand, but it feels there's something really interesting to me about that kind of like, yeah, we're not going to talk about the emotional dimension of it. Um, yeah. And you could definitely read that as just actually about the power relation of boss and worker or something, but mm-hmm. I don't know. It feels like very charged too. This is making me wonder actually to what extent Michael won and to what extent he sort of didn't and it's yeah back to your point of the elevator and the silence in the elevator because michael only wins by completely violating the rules and having no skill at all yeah (laughs) he's so ridiculous yeah in his fighting (laughs) and that made me laugh a lot i've got to say he starts out with this little quick idiotic looking footwork (laughs) (laughs) into it but yeah, it feels like he only, he wins in a way that humiliates Dwight, but that also feels really embarrassing to Michael. Yes, yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, isn't that an embarrassing way for a man to fight? You're 100% right, yeah. And that is, yeah, like he's repairing his relationship with Dwight, but it's in private. So how does he regain his... Well, but he never had it. He never had the, the office's respect. So there's no way to get it back. He just needs Dwight's back because Dwight's the only one that gives him respect. Um, yeah. But you're totally right. Like he does not win anything because he doesn't, pl- he doesn't play by the rules, but not in a good way. Like, I don't know. Uh-huh. Yeah. It is so funny too, where he's like, I hit, that's a point. Like I hit the pants, <laughs> whatever. And he's like, no, it's just my pants. It wasn't my leg. It felt so bickery. Uh, yes, it did. That's really funny. It seems like too, kind of with, you see this really with the relationship of um, Dwight and the sensei and within the kind of rules, it seems like there's a lot that is about honor and kind of fighting with honor. Yeah. As opposed to Michael's fighting with absolutely no honor at all. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm, I'm excited to see if this thread continues in the future episodes. Like, will we see more martial arts? Are we going to get a, a, a follow-up to this fight? Yes. Um, <laughs> now I'm curious 
who your Dundee of the week is going to be. Cause I've waffled around. I've been unsure. Um, so yeah, I'm wondering if you're going to go, go in a certain direction. So why don't you kick it off? What is your Dundee of the week? I have, I have a couple of people who are in my running and in my consideration. Although I just realized I forgot one thing. I liked how, I think last time you said, here's a quote, I just need to read this into the record. <laughs> I need to read this into the record because I love it so much. And it's the very end. Yeah. And this is, this is Michael being interviewed in his office. He says, I told Dwight that there is honor in losing, which as we all know is completely ridiculous. But there is however, honor in making a loser feel better which is what I just did for Dwight. Would I rather be feared or loved? Um, easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. <laughs> I that today at the dojo. So I guess one thing I wanna follow for future episodes is how does Michael manage that relationship between being feared and loved? And does he find a way for people to be afraid of how much they love him? That's a great, that's great. <laughs> I'm gonna be thinking about that. Um, shall we go to the Dundies? Yeah, who's your Dundee? I'm going to give two Dundies on the themes of teaching and learning. Hey. Uh, so the Patient Teacher Award goes to Sensei Ira. <laughs> that guy was so good. When Dwight calls him the first time, <laughs> I think he at first doesn't realize who it is because Dwight has to say, it's me, Senpai, Dwight. but I don't know just watching him during that fight where at first he's trying to get them to stay within some constraints and then it's totally gone and you do see him kind of smiling a little bit or sort of laughing a little bit um I found him delightful and second I would like to give the dedicated student award to Ryan the temp who during his break is out on his car. Did you notice he's reading a book and he has a highlighter? Oh. That that guy is annotating and good Lord knows an English professor loves to see some good annotation. That's true. Oh, I love that. Um, What do you got, Tyler? I have two uh, and they're from the the same scene, my favorite scene. Uh, The first is to the non-judgy bystander award, which I'm gonna give to Meredith. (laughs) Because uh, I just appreciate it. She had no look of judgment. She was just like, oh, you know, flirting. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I thought, how refreshing, you know, in this office where there's a lot of judgment and shame and posturing, at least in this moment, Meredith seemed to have no, um, you know, uh, particular point of view or whatever. She just was reacting. Um, and then I, uh, I don't know what to call it. I'm going to call it the Unbridled Joy Award. But when Pam laughs in that scene, I felt like it was the first time, one of the first times we've seen her like really happy. Um, and I found it like interesting and charming and infectious, you know, it's like, oh, like she's, she's, um, yeah, like she's interesting. And she's got like a moment of joy that we never see her really get because she's suffering Michael's stupidity or uh, Roy's, you know, disappointment or whatever. I just feel like we haven't actually seen Pam like ha- that happy. And uh, so I- I'm going to give her a-, a Dundee for her unbridled joy. Um, but, you know, it is occurring to me something that you made us think about the um, 
repair between Dwight and um, what's his face, Michael. Uh, but we also get repair between Jim and Pam. And I forgot that like he gives her the chips at the end. He says like, have a good weekend. She says you too. And it's clear there's a gap. There's a distance there. They don't talk about it. He starts to write her an email saying, I'm sorry. Yes. Like rather than say anything and address it directly, he just gives her the chips and it's like resetting, right? It's like going back oh, to yes. you, um, which is similar to Dwight and um, Mike and the way that you presented yeah. the Dwight and Michael thing. Cause like the dynamic hasn't changed even though it sort of should have from both of these events, uh-huh. um, but, but it doesn't, uh, or at least not at the end of this episode. So um, I'll be kind of, I'm excited to keep debating the love plot. Yeah, that's so right. I feel like the show keeps doing these interesting parallels. Um, and I think that's so right on. One thing I also wanted to note is that we learned Pam's email address from oh. Pam at DunderMifflin.com. <laughs> not <I'm laughs> You're the um the way of establishing it because he starts to write that email, but it's like that would really directly acknowledge the thing in a way that then he has he kind of walks it back. And again, it's when he's seen. It's when the camera uh, is over oh. his shoulder and he's seen. And so we go with the chips. So the social gaze is the thing that kind of like uh prevents or the normative gaze is the thing that prevents like vulnerability yeah. or yeah interesting yeah. all right well and it happens with michael and dwight so the michael and dwight thing does happen on camera but he he only goes michael only goes and does that with dwight after other people are gone he closes them into the conference room right and he insists that dwight not tell anybody yeah, yeah. <laughs> it has to be like a private secret promotion oh interesting huh Um, all right yeah we're gonna come back to that next time we are going to be watching and discussing the client another chili centric episode it is not to spoil anything but all right we really have to think about recording one of these at a chili's i really think we gotta we do that's a great idea special episode all right Well, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, guys.